This podcast episode is sponsored by Statera. Statera is a web-based application that helps youth athletes and their stakeholders estimate training load, track maturation status, monitor readiness, and manage injury. Put together by coaches working with busy youth athletes, Statera helps keep things simple and brings together the most important training information in one place to ensure that effective athlete-centered decisions can be made. No more complicated Excel tutorials and spreadsheets, just upload your athletes' data and their training schedule and start to take control of their training commitments and workload. Make more informed decisions and protect your athletes' well-being, supporting their performance. Statera takes your data very seriously. GDPR compliant and registered with the ICO, choose from a range of maturation indices and validated measures or customize your own. Statera can record any training variable and all your data is fully exportable. To reach out today and get a free walkthrough, head over to www.statera.uk. That's S-T-A-T-E-R-A dot U-K. Welcome to the LTAD Network Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Anderson, and today I'm speaking with Boo Shecksnader. Irving, or Boo Shecksnader, is regarded internationally as one of the leading authorities in training design, bringing 39 years of experience in coaching and consulting. He recently returned to the LSU track and field coaching staff for a second stint, adding to his previous 12-year term on the LSU staff team. Regarded as one of the world's premier field event coaches, he was the mastermind behind 19 NCAA champions during his collegiate coaching career. He was a part of 12 NCAA championship teams and a pair of JUCO national titles, as well as developing a host of conference champions and All-Americans. Schexnader has also been a prominent figure on the international scene, having coached triple jumper Walter Davis to multiple world championships and long jumper John Moffat to a silver medal at the 2004 Olympics in Athens. He has coached 11 Olympians, and has served on coaching staffs for Team USA to the 2003 Pan Am Games in Santo Domingo, the 2006 World Junior Championships in Beijing, and was the jumps coach for Team USA at the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. So welcome to the podcast, Boo. It's great to have you on today. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Rob. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. So for those who are you know, uninitiated with your work or your kind of coaching career, give us a little bit of a, a background story in terms of how you individually fell, fell into sport as a, as a young athlete and how that progressed into a coaching career. Well, I was a decent athlete. Uh, most of my, I didn't do much, I, even though I'm kind of known for track and field now, I really got started in American football. I was a pretty good American football player, did a little bit of track, and I kind of got started coaching in American football uh, more so than any other sport. And it was kind of almost accidental that I ended up in high level uh, track and field. But um, as far as the transition into coaching is concerned, I, I don't know, it was almost like a virus in my body. I kind of always knew you know, from the time I entered sport as an athlete, as a mediocre athlete, that I wanted to be a coach. I, my personality is I'm a builder. I, uh, you know, I actually physically built my own house. You know, I like building things. I'm, I like, I'm a problem solver. And I like kind of the technical chess match that kind of goes along with coaching. And there were just things, it was just a field that was really attractive uh, to me. And I also felt at the time that athletics had done a lot for me as a person, you know, when I was young and I just, feel very strongly about the value of athletics for young people as a tool for personal development and such. So I guess that's why I coach now. Mm. So what have been some of the pit stops you've made from a, a coaching career perspective around various roles, et cetera? 
Well, I started as a high school coach. You know, I was coaching uh, American football and track and field and cross country and did that for about 11 years with really no intention of doing anything else. And uh, suddenly uh, you're working in a school and a new principal comes in and somebody calls you with an opportunity. And before long, I found myself in collegiate track and field. And then that's how I kind of got into track. Uh, it was the it was the first uh, phone call after the the boss I didn't care for uh, took over, <laughs> and that's how I got out of football into into uh, athletics. And uh, make a long story short, since then I you know I just worked and opportunities came and good athletes came and I just I, I am where I am now. Hmm. So one of the things that I wanted to touch on around your kind of coaching and some of your thoughts was the way you, you think about and conceptualize plyometrics according to their purpose. So give us a bit of an understanding of how you've kind of arrived at, at I guess, a, a system of categorizing them and what those kind of categories are and some examples of how you use those. Yeah, I, I kind of always have cringed when I hear a coach say, um, well, we're going to do our plyos, meaning that it's kind of a generic approach to it. And I understand that that's better than nothing. And I understand that the coach who says that rec does recognize the value of it. But I just think that there are so many different types of plyometric exercises available to you. And I try to categorize them so that and my categories are kind of based upon purpose. And that's, I think, the real key to good effective plyometric training is the idea of being purposeful, meaning that each category has a particular purpose that it serves in the development of the athlete. Each category has a specific purpose that it fulfills as far as its role in the program. And that means that some of them are preparatory, you know, some of them are high-end training, you know, they have to be sequenced according to demands and intensity, of course. Some of them have uh, other purposes as well, you know. So I, when I look at the way I actually classify plyometrics, I, I kind of look at several different categories and they're kind of based upon purpose and also intensity. So one category I have is what I call lower leg conditioning, very, very mild plyometrics that are basically designed just to strengthen the lower leg. They're kind of the things you use to prevent lower leg syndromes like shin splints and so forth. Uh, short bounds are another category that I use and those short bounds I kind of subcategorize into either horizontal work or vertical work. And the short bounds, you know, all plyometrics of course are about speed and power and uh, strength development but each one has its additional role and the short bounds are more about skill development because I feel very strongly that the uh, whole, uh, the, the advantages of plyometric training as far as skill acquisition are highly overlooked. For example, um, teaching athletes to push against the ground in particular planes and in particular ways has a direct transfer into sport, has a direct transfer into different types of athletic movement. So if you're able to understand those, you can get a little bit more bang for your buck out of the training in that regard. So the short bounds are all about skill development. I, I do a lot of in-place jumps. The in-place jumps are predominantly about um, uh, volume establishment. You know, when you look at different types of plyometrics, one of the downsides of many types of jump training is the repetitive nature of the foot contacts and the repetitive nature of the impacts. Whereas if you pick a whole bunch of different in-place jumps, the repetitive, you're picking different exercises. Each one has a slightly different demand as far as the knee, ankle, hip. And the variety there, the diversity there of the exercises means you don't get the, the, the fuse is not lit on these repetitive movement syndromes. So they're by far the best way to build your volumes. Uh, 
if you're looking at power sustenance, then extended bounds are your most valuable tool, you know, bounding over greater distances. You know, those are often categorized more as a power exercise, but I think in terms more of power sustenance, you know, the ability to um, uh, sustain power over extended efforts. And I think that they work really well. These longer extended bounds work really well in sports where there's a big speed power elastic component, but you also have a fairly significant endurance component. And then of course, my, the last category is depth jumps and you know the, the multi-level box type of stuff that you do with challenging box heights. And the sole purpose for that is very simply achievement of high intensities. You know, it's kind of the crowning gem in the plyometric crown. And it's ultimately what you're aspiring to do with your athletes when you start a career or start a year or whatever the case may be. So, so that's how I kind of look at it. Each category has a specific role in the program. And I think sometimes one of the mistakes we make in programming is that we start off doing some of this stuff. It serves its purpose. Then we move on to a different part or place in the program. And that plyometric stays in the program, even though its purpose has genuinely already been served. So I don't think it's bad to get have these rotate into the program and back out of the program at certain times of the year, depending upon what phase of training you may be in. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense in terms of you know, I, I guess subdividing it into specific purposes. And as you say, you know, as, as your purpose changes, shifting that in and out. So what's, for example, with your lower leg conditioning, what would you consider to be an example of an exercise that would be kind of stereotypical of your lower leg conditioning category? Well, typically they're, they're very low intensity type of work with practically no knee flexion, practically no hip flexion. So simple things like ankle bounces or straddle hops and those types of things. If you can kind of imagine a person doing jump rope, exercise, you know, simple jump roping like a boxer may do in his training regimen or something like that, that would kind of fall into that category as well. The only difference is with the lower leg conditioning is I'm big on changing surfaces. Uh, I want different types of, of uh, rigidity in the surface. So I'll do them from things as soft as sand to things as firm as a, a hard, you know, track type of rubberized track surface. And uh, also a good bit of it's done barefoot because um, lower leg conditioning is not just about strengthening, it's largely about mobility. You know, the, the foot is not just a hammer, it's also a shock absorber. And most of your injuries, you know, by far the biggest cause of non-contact injury in sport period, they're all rooted in the feet. You know, the collisions in not, in, are between the feet and the ground, between the feet and the surface. So almost all of your non-contact injuries are rooted in the foot and losses of mobility and restrictions in the foot. So when you can put an athlete on grass or in sand barefoot and you get the individual digits moving independently of each other and restore mobility and maintain mobility, that's a really, really big help. I, you know, I, I, I use the term conditioning, but I wanna say that conditioning is not just about strength, mobility might be the more important uh, component there. Mm, now that's definitely something that I, you know, many years ago probably wouldn't even have really considered and, and more, uh, kind of recently I've started to think actually about you know that focal point of the foot being the first you know contact with the ground and actually you know often it doesn't matter how strong you are further the chain if if that foot is a, is a weak point and you're dissipating force so you're losing tension all those kind of things then you're kind of bailing water out of a out of a ship that's already shipping a ship that's already sinking because that foot is your first kind of point of contact so it makes a, it makes a ton of sense what, what do you yeah. think about in terms of those surfaces how, what's your kind of thought process around changing surfaces and, and how you go well the, the, the harder surfaces are more about the strengthening aspect 
whereas the softer surfaces become more about the mobility aspect, you know, because the softer surfaces allow the individual toes and digits to move independent and independently of each other, you know. And, and I mean, if you go to world championships or Olympic games and you walk in the medical tent and look at the really good therapist work, um, when a person has a problem, whether it's in the hip or the hamstring or the knee, whatever, they started the big toe and they trace their way up because that's how those types of injuries and syndromes are typically rooted, you know? And so often it's um, uh, the talus or the cuboid bone simply being out of position and needing either a chiropractic adjustment or some type of, uh, you know, the ability of those individual bones in the foot to glide against each other, at, you know, at those articulations is ultimately a, an important part of biomechanics. And we tend in biomechanical thought to, to break the body into to individual segments and assuming those segments don't have, those are segments have rigidity to them, but it, that isn't quite a correct model. Mm. No, that's that's really thought provoking. Actually, it's a, a very good points that you're raising. You've kind of already touched on it a little bit, but you talked about using plyometrics as skill development. But are there certain, I guess, you, you kind of suggested those more horizontal plyometrics potentially for the skill element of applying force to the ground? Is there are there kind of compatible or complementary um, methods that you use in terms of matching those plyometrics with certain parts of the the speed continuum, be it acceleration, max speed, etc. Oh, unquestionably. I, I really like the aspects. I, like, um, I have kind of hard, fast rules that I follow in a general preparation type of training. Like when athletes are doing acceleration development work, I'll almost always do a short bound work that is uh, horizontally oriented because the horizontal nature of the short bound work really reinforces what you're trying to teach in in the acceleration you know because acceleration itself has a big horizontal component when you're starting to look at maximal velocity and the direction of strike the force application is predominantly vertical well then it's nice to have vertical type of firing and i consider those two really important boxes to check in like any general preparation program. You know, to me in a general preparation program, you have to accomplish horizontal skill development. You have to accomplish vertical skill development. And I guess the third box to check if you're in a big jumping sport would be the volume establishment. And that's why when I program in general preparation, you can pretty much expect you're gonna have a vertical day, you're gonna have a horizontal day, you're gonna have a circuit type of day in that regard. So that being said, organizing it that way, I think is really important. You know, you're basically teaching the body how to apply force in particular planes, which is very useful. And by the way, for some reason, the vertical stuff seems to really help uh, field sports with change of direction as well. So it's not just, you know, single direction. I think because the muscle groups that are addressed are very similar. You know, gluteus medius, for example, is really big when you're doing vertical work and uh, in, a, in single support and I think that has a lot to do with their change of direction capabilities, and it also enhances some of the rotational stuff as, as well. But that being said, I, that's kind of how I like to program. But I do want to say, though, that there does come a time to break the rules. You know, if, 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 for example, I have an athlete in September and October in their first couple of months of training, and every time they do acceleration development, I'm following that up with horizontal short bounding. Well, that's great. It really helps them to develop and understand uh, physically and mental and, and cerebrally the, the, the uh, horizontal force application concepts. 
But by the time you get to the third month, they ought to have it by now. So the time comes where you want to break that rule and kind of challenge their ability to do it, you know? So then I start to kind of break those rules and use confusion combinations to some extent. You don't want to stay in that box all the time. I think it's good to stay in that box as long as you're in a genuine teaching mode. But once you've done the teaching, and your, start, and, and your purpose now is to challenge the stability of what you've taught, then you want to start breaking those rules a little bit. Mm. Out of curiosity, does that same thought process of the, the vertical and horizontal kind of components carry over into the, the kind of lifting or gym-based side of things, or is that a separate kind of construct for you? No, it kind of does. You know, I, I, I try to give... You know, I try to give the athletes every opportunity to learn things in a very effective learning environment in general preparation, maybe into early specific preparation. But like I said, at some point in time, um, spoon feeding them everything in a very easily manageable way is not what you want to do. You know, you want to be able to challenge them. And that training stimulus becomes kind of stagnant if you don't start to break it up. So, so I try to follow the rules real early and I try to kind of challenge and break them occasionally um, once we have advanced into the training gear a little bit further and after all every sport you know particularly the team sports is a nasty mix of horizontal and vertical and you know so so it's not like most sports are that compartmentalized either you know yeah 100 percent, definitely no, no no i was just going to say do you think there's an advantage to exposing those younger or developing athletes to plyometric exercises be it some of those lower leg conditioning or even maybe more advanced than that earlier on in their development Oh, unquestionably. Yeah, I think that young people are more ripe for speed training and more than we give them credit for. And I, I think that it's very good. And because of the whole, if you understand the whole skill development side of plyometrics, as opposed to the, you know, advanced athletic type of training, then it makes perfect sense. But no, unquestionably. So, and I get asked the question all the time, you know, um, you know, when should young kids start plyometrics, you know, well, they start when I start coaching them, to be honest with you, because in some way, shape or form, you're going to have that stuff in the program at some appropriate level. You know, when, you know, when I say, well, oh, I've got an eight-year-old and they're doing multi-jump training with, I'm being a little facetious, of course, but if I have an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old and they're doing plyometric training with me, that horrifies some people. But if you come and watch what it looks like, it's totally appropriate for those ages. And when you send them home and they go onto the playground, they're doing jump rope and hopscotch and they're playing jumping games too, you know? So, you know, so um, I, I think that when we kind of start to consider those things, I think sometimes they're based upon what our biases may be as far as plyometric training. You know, we're thinking long bounds and high boxes and things like that. And of course, the whole world of plyometric training is a much more diverse spectrum than that. And it, I mean, I even have plyometric training that I adapt to ACL patients for in their rehab processes, you know, so you can bring the level of plyometric training down to anybody at any level. And the only real limiting factor for a very young person is do they have the attention span to really genuinely want to train? Yeah, no, I think that's totally true. I think maybe we've kind of fallen into the trap of when, when we say plyometrics, people are thinking about shock method plyometrics and, and you know, depth jumps yeah. and, and rebounds, et cetera. And actually we're not thinking about hopscotch or jumping rope or those kind of really basic low level ones. And, and you know, the kind of caveat that we have of, you know, you should be able to squat two times body weight. Yeah, that's maybe applicable for our high end super shock method, but do we really need to do that to jump a bit of rope? Because these kids are gonna, as you say, <laughs> gonna do it in the playground anyway. Yeah, I know exactly. Like I get the same question about weight training, you know, like uh, well, how old should a kid be when they start weight training? And, you know, I say, well, typically I've seen athletes that have done very well at 10 or 11 year old with 
you know, but they're lifting bars that are lighter than the toys they're playing with at home. You, you, you know, so it, it's, it's all about understanding at what level they are. But it's interesting that you should, um, you should say that you're, you're totally correct in that regard. The, the whole idea of the, the prejudicial notion that we have about plyometrics being this highly advanced thing when it's a much more diverse type of a, type of a scheme. And it should be in every program, actually. Hmm. 100%. So, if, you know, if, the whole, sorry, fire right? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry we're bumping into each other, but you brought something up that was really interesting. I've, I've read that same thing, you know, back when plyometrics were really a hot topic back in the 80s and everything. That was a common thing you used to read. You have to be able to squat twice your body weight before you can do plyometrics. And I understand that before you attack high level plyometrics, um, you have to have certain levels of strength and posture postural correctness and technical correctness and so forth. But sometimes I've found that you have athletes that are just elastically superior. And I've had athletes that have not been able to hit certain standards in the, um, in the static or the concentric type of strength world that are perfectly fine doing high level plyometrics because elasticity is their wheelhouse. Elasticity is what they're really good at, you know? Yeah, no, I definitely agree. You've had athletes who, you know, have a, an incredible counter movement jump through the roof and, and can't even squat one and a half times body weight. And you think, well, these, these rules don't necessarily match up. No, you're, you're correct. And I'm not saying that you don't try to improve that squat, of course. You know, I'm, you know we, we're always striving for athletic development in a balanced form. But at the same time, um, do you hold that athlete back in the area where they're really strong? I really believe very firmly that there are certain times of the year when you train an athlete to their weak points, meaning trying to advance their weak points. But I also believe there are times of the year, particularly the most critical competition times, when you want to play to their strong points, you know, more so than harping on their weak points. Hmm. So if a developing athlete maybe hasn't developed that, that plyometric ability or, or, you know, say you had someone who was super cautious and hadn't touched on that in their program, despite us saying you probably should, do you think it's possible for that person to, to catch up or do you think they kind of have to start at the beginning of, you know, some basic lower level conditioning drills or, or does it depend person to person? Well, they have to, they, they unquestionably can catch up. You know, I mean, you know, a failure to address these types of things really early in a career um, doesn't necessarily limit you later in a career, but they still have to follow the steps. You know, you, you, you there's no, just because you're older and you were undeveloped doesn't mean you get to skip ahead to the next level. You know, we just, you know, you'll get, you don't get a chance to skip a grade, so to speak in plyometrics, you kind of got to cover all the grades and so forth. But I'll be honest with you ever since, you know, the culture is different and educational cultures are different in every country, but since, physical education has been pretty much limited or eliminated from the schools. And since video games have been invented, I find everybody's behind a little bit more when they come to me than they were say 30 years ago. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I recorded a podcast with Dan Baker last week on, on long-term strength and power development. He was saying the same thing. He's like, you know, back in the, in the old days, you used to do push-ups and sit-ups and squats and all this kind of stuff just in your PE. And the fact that that's been removed now means people lack that basic capacity to do those things. And so we have to revisit it as part of our program. And it's, and it's got me thinking more around, you know, is, is what we do really just physical education? It's just at some point we specialize a bit more around preparing for one sport rather than just generally physically preparing people. No, you're totally right. And, you know, I want, that's a, a, a term that I use a lot when I do clinics and things, the whole idea of movement quality, meaning that, you you know, you aren't necessarily training a person for a particular sport as sometimes as much as you are just training them to move well, whether it be accelerate well, 
a, a sprint well, change direction well, decelerate well, or whatever the case may be. Mm, no, I, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> so how do you determine then when an athlete's ready to progress on to maybe some of those more advanced plyometric methods that we mentioned? You, you have to observe that the, there is no formal test other than the eye test, but basically it consists of mastery. You know, in my, in my mind, uh, the plyometric scheme is very well organized, meaning that once you master this type, you're ready to move on to this and so forth. And it's about mastery. So when, and mastery to me consists of several things. Do you see that the, the foot contact times and the amortization patterns, are they appropriate? You know, you see excessive ground contact time or appropriate ground contact time, or, or even in some situations you see athletes that are overly rigid because they're intimidated by the intensity of the exercise. You know, so that, that's a common thing is you see excessive stiffness when athletes are overwhelmed from time to time. But that being said, the, the correct amortization patterns, I want to make sure that the amortization patterns are correct in all the joints. Like, do you see correct amortization distributed between the hip, knee, and ankle, or is it all taken in and at one joint, that would be a huge marker and huge potential for injury at some particular point in time. You know, what's interesting is I do a lot of knee rehabilitation stuff. And one of the things I do with knee rehab people is I uh, have them do drop jumps. And um, what's so interesting is I'll put them on a box appropriate for that stage in the rehab process and I'll make them fall and they have to just land. And I'll do that several repetitions and they'll have to fall and bounce. And I'll do that several repetitions. But one of the exercises, the third exercise, is that they have to land and move smoothly into a squat upon impact. And it's funny because what you'll see is some athletes will bend at the waist and won't bend at the knee. Some will bend at the knees totally and won't bend at the waist. And right then, it's like a flashlight shining on the, the cause of the injury in the first place, meaning that you you, right then and there, you start to understand why the athlete became injured in the very first place when you start to see those weaknesses and in the amortization programs. And I think that's why often I've had athletes that have come out of like ACL rehab and have played way better after ACL rehab than before, because it gives you a chance to teach all of those things. You know? But going back, like I said, the amortization patterns are a critical one and the ability to maintain the correct posture particularly of pelvic alignment and, and, and spinal alignment under the, uh, the forces of impact. Those are like the check boxes that have to be checked before you're ready to move on to things that are a little bit more sophisticated and a little more advanced and in intensity wise. Mm. Yeah, I watched your um, one of the, the, the workshops or webinars you, you gave on uh, the ACL return to place because in the new role I stepped in, I inherited three from the, from the get-go. So I was trying to upscale on that pretty quickly. And I found it really interesting what you were saying about introducing plyometrics a lot more earlier than people probably would, would usually. What was your, your thought process around that? And what, how did you kind of map that out for those guys during that, that rehab element? Well, well, my introduction to ACL uh, rehab was kind of interesting. I, I um, there was a, a young man, uh, a good athlete who had become injured, tore an ACL, really good athlete, high, very high profile person, but still a high schooler. And um, I coached his dad. And after his ACL rehab kind of stalled, he knocked on my door and says, coach, I want you to rehab this, my son's knee. And I told him, I don't, I don't really do that. He says, well, you're going to do this one, coach, you know, <laughs> and he had played for me. He was an athlete of mine. So I did. But my, my thought process is very simple. Like if you look at not, if you look at just human movement and human performance, everything's elastic. Everything is based on elasticity. Everything is stretch reflexes. Everything's elastic responses. 
And I just don't believe that if something is that prevalent that you wait until later in a rehab to do it. I, you know, if, if it's in my, my opinion of athletic development, whether it's rehab or not, is that if there is a particular quality that has to be present in the final product, it needs to be present in the very earliest stages of training. It's not something that you jump to later. And so that's the challenge is finding ways to remediate things so that they can be involved in a very early in, in very early in the training process. So that was that's where I came up with that idea and it's really worked well for us is that the ability to, um, to, to remediate the jumping program to a level where a person who is seven or eight weeks out from ACL repair surgery can do it safely and effectively. The other process of course is just understanding that um, the, the nervous system improvements are really prerequisite to reacquiring strength. And I think that's why so many traditional rehabs fail is that um, you speed or, or an elastic training actually drives the, the ability of the nervous system to activate muscle tissue to higher levels. And that's what you actually have to improve in order for a debilitated athlete to to get back on track. So if you're telling an athlete that, well, I'm gonna let you jump after you get strong, you know, I'm gonna let you sprint after you get strong, it's kind of like telling them, well, I'm gonna let you lift weights after you get strong. No, no, it's the weights that make you strong. It's the cart before the horse in that, in that way. So that's the whole idea, the idea of trying to employ speed, power, elastic training very early in the rehab, albeit in a very, very modified form. And because it has to be a big piece of the puzzle from that point forward. It makes a lot of sense. I'm just, I'm just flicking back through a similar context in my mind, but you know, I don't know if you, you probably have come across it, but some of the research kind of comparing, you know, the speeds of different hamstring dominant exercises compared to sprinting. And, and even the fastest one is so far away from the speed experience. It's and, and not even close. It, you know what you're saying there to me makes perfect sense i'm like hang on everything we do in the gym yeah it's going to build the strength but it's nowhere near what's required in in you know the sport element and the plyometric you know side of things is so much closer and albeit even if we start with a you know a very low level one and gradually progress that's so much more uh close to the the demands of, of you know be it speed or be it joint angles etc to what we're asking the athlete to do whereas to start with the strength element as you're saying kind of actually it's a bit like we go from driving a mini to driving a ferrari it's like it's not the same thing no you're totally right you know and like i get the same question all the time well you know i notice you never have hamstring injuries coach boo uh, what do y'all do for hamstring strength and the answer is nothing now we lift weight you know but everything is a global approach you know and we you know total we train the whole leg and so forth but but my point is is if you, you want to really know why is that i feel like we teach mechanics very well and we sprint all the time you know, so ultimately the, the, the exercise for the hamstring is the actual sprinting itself. And, 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 you know, for your listeners, you know, you might be the most fit person in the world, but if you never sprint and you go out and try, you're sore as hell the next day. And that just tells you the level of tension that those tissues experience in sprinting or plyometrics for that matter is just so much higher than it is in anything you do in the gym. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, certainly in terms of everything, there's probably no metric you can measure that wouldn't back that up in terms of the force, the, the speed at which you're applying that force, the joint angles, et cetera. It's all far higher intensity and, and far more demanding than anything we can really do. You know, with no, you're totally correct. You know, and all the anecdotal evidence points that way too, but there'll always be some people who believe the earth's flat, um, unfortunately. 
So how does your approach change? We've already kind of touched on it a little bit when you kind of started talking about team sports, but do you look at things differently when you have, you know, a track athlete versus a team sport athlete? Not very much. Um, and the reason why is, again, I am always looking more at movement quality as opposed to uh, developing an athlete for a particular sport. I believe very firmly that you want to develop all of the different forms of strength in a balanced fashion. For example, uh, elastic strength or reactive strength, you know, the plyometric forms of strength are only one form of strength, but you know, power has to progress at the same rate. The slower forms of strength need to progress and so forth. So the balance between those is very important. And I've always found that athletes don't move well when those three things tend to get out of balance for one reason or another. So I'm always looking at just movement quality in general. Uh, and taking whoever they are and whatever sport they're in and just think in terms of movement quality, the ability to accelerate effectively, the ability to start effectively, the ability to sprint effectively, the ability to decelerate effectively, the, the ability to change direction, you know, just working on those basic movement patterns. I, I just kind of, I, I get credit sometimes for being a high level biomechanic approach, you know, coach, but honestly, I mean, we're talking about things that are very basic movement patterns, you know, things like sprinting and jumping and whatever. Yeah, I understand we do some teaching, but, you know, those are things that, you know, three-year-olds and four-year-olds are doing too. They're not that complicated as far as the movement patterns are concerned. And I think more in terms of just trying to develop the body in a way that allows it to do what it's intended to do naturally, as opposed to trying to think of some contrived manner to get it to do something that ordinarily it could not do. I, I think in terms of more breaking down barriers to performance as opposed to truly driving performance in, in those situations. The only thing that I really change as far as plyometric programming is not based so much on an athlete's sport, but it's more based on their body type. You know, obviously bigger people are, you know, you have to be more careful. There's more impact there and you're going to probably make some different choices and so forth. I want my big people to move like small people. So the philosophical approach to training is the same. But my individualization with almost everybody I do is not at all based on the sport that they're in. It's by far more often based on the, uh, their, their body type, you know, because you might have two athletes in the same sport with entirely different bills that might react entirely differently to plyometric training. But nobody doesn't do any plyometrics, um, but the program does have to be modified in that regard in some situations. So is that modification through intensity, volume, both? probably both in most situations, you know. I always look at it this way, you know, is that basically, you know, big people have more muscle mass and they're kind of built to lift and small people have less muscle mass and they're more uh, kind of built to sprint and do plyometrics. So everybody I have does lifting, sprinting and plyometrics. The big people just do more of the weights and a little less of the sprinting and plyos and the smaller people do a little more of the plyos and and and, and sprinting and a little less of the weights. And that's just how I see it, yeah, you know. Um, everybody does everything. It's just, you kind of make choices and slant the volumes toward their particular body types in that regard. But philosophically, it's really all the same, you know. One of the things I just want to pick up on that I thought was really interesting in, in what you were describing earlier was the way you described strength as being like kind of almost more speed specific than contraction type. So you didn't say eccentric, concentric, isometric, you said kind of slower, but up to reactive strength. And that's interesting because it's only a kind of concept that I've started really changing the way I think about recently. Because, you know, a lot of the training world is very 
heavily dominant, I guess, maybe because it's easier to measure traditionally around, you know, concentric 1RMs and someone's bench press or their back squat or whatever. But as you kind of alluded to, there's many different forms of strength and actually being good at all of them is really important. But I think perhaps for the long term, or certainly historically, we've kind of overvalued or certainly placed more significance on concentric strength. I thought it was really interesting that you pulled up the different types of strength there. Yeah, uh, and, and I'm a firm believer in balance there. I, you know, um, remember, I came from American football, you know, the, the most muscled up sport there is possibly, you know, so I had a, maybe a little bit of a bias in that regard early in my career, too. And then I figured out real quickly that there comes a time when increasing that type of strength probably causes more harm than good. You know, and I do remember when I came to work at, at LSU, there were some athletes who were kind of hanging around from the previous coach kind of doing their own thing. The previous coach was an excellent coach, uh, better than me. Um, but these athletes were kind of hanging around doing their own thing. And I can just remember some athletes who were about 170, 180 pounds, putting 350 pounds on a bar and doing like single leg step-ups with it. But their sprint performances were way worse than they were when they had worked with the coach. And I, I just observed this, and I and then I started looking at what I was doing with the athletes I have, and I just started to realize that there just comes a point in time where progressing those slower forms of strength probably retards development in power and in elastic strength to to some extent. And that's why I'm kind of a about a 2.2 person. Like if you look at a person's deep squat, I think that once you get to about 2.1, maybe 2.2 times their body weight um, on a, like a, a true deep sub parallel kind of squat, any increases beyond that typically I find cause more harm than, than good to be honest with you. It's a really interesting point because I think um, we can kind of maybe fall into the trap of thinking that what us, what the, the tool that got us to this point is the same tool that's going to get us to the next point. And it may be, you know, we had someone who got those kind of newbie gains or, or had that low-hanging fruit of just pushing concentric strength up. And as concentric strength went up, all the other things went up as well. But it gets to a point of a kind of a threshold where it's like that concentric strength isn't the, the weakest link in the chain anymore. It's some other element, be it reactive or being, you know, isometric or amortization or et cetera. Yeah, I really like your term, uh, low-hanging fruit there. But, but like you said, it's, it's, I, think, I think you hit it on the head when you said it's easily measurable and it's easy to point out progress and maybe that has something to do with it. Whereas the plyometric world, it's, gosh, there's, there, we still don't have the technology to really measure everything we need to measure in that regard. And unfortunately, our eyes and our common sense are still the two best tools that we have and you, you can't find them in the uh, sporting goods catalog. You, know? you just kind of have to develop them and such. So speaking of eyes, what are some of the, the common faults that you see when people are coaching or ex executing plyometrics and, and what are your kind of fixes for those faults? The, um, when I, well, everyone, different types of plyometrics, of course, have different diseases, pre uh, prevalent diseases, but I'll kind of go through the, 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 the basic ones. Um, what, foot contact patterns are a, most, are a common one, you know. Now, when you look at different types of plyometrics, the foot type, the foot contact patterns that you want do change. So if, for example, if you're doing really horizontally oriented work, it's, it's pretty much a full-footed heel to toe rolling kind of action. If you're doing something that's fairly intense, but more vertical, it's not gonna be heel to toe, it's gonna be kind of flat to toe. If you're doing something that's even a little bit, um, something that's vertical of a slightly less intense version, normally you're kind of hitting on the back of the ball of the foot, so to speak. 
But generally speaking, you want more of the foot on the ground than less. You know, you want to dissipate the forces over more area as opposed to less area, understanding that different angles and the simple geometry of some of these plyometrics just lends itself to slightly different contact patterns. So the foot contact patterns are probably the single most important thing. And, and they're important because really, because of the way that we're, we're hardwired, if you get the foot contact patterns right, what you're, what you're doing is you're dictating that the pre-recruitment, you know, the, the muscular stiffness prior to impact that you need, the isometric contractions you need prior to impact to set up good, a good succeeding eccentric phase, you can pretty much check the box that that's going to be uh, there for you if you teach those contact patterns uh, correctly. When you're doing double leg plyometrics, it's pretty simple, but uh, the most common mistakes in double leg stuff besides the, um, the foot contact patterns is a rushed firing order, meaning that uh, a lot of times athletes won't completely fire. They won't use the, heat, the, knee, the hip, the knee, and the ankle in sequence properly. And if you pay close attention, a lot of times, um, let's use a standing long jump, for example, because it's something that all of our listeners can easily visualize or whatever. Like if you're doing a standing long jump, as you push off of the ground, you want a, the ground contact time. You want the push off time at a certain value. And a lot of athletes will actually rush that and won't spend enough time. And if you pay close attention, almost always those athletes will start to bend their elbows as they swing their arms forward, meaning they're shortening the radius there. And that tends to rush things. So one of the things I look at in order to establish the proper contact times in double leg is, and, and, and single leg for some extent is the radius of the arm swing. I'm not a big arm person, but a lot of times just they'll shorten up the arms far too early in the simpler form of plyometrics. I typically don't mention arms very much at all, but the very first day of the practice year, you know, when I bring them out, we're doing something real simple, like standing long jumps, I make a big deal of it then to kind of make it a point that hey, it's, it's not always about getting off the ground as quickly as you can. You know, you can underdo that, but you can also overdo that to some extent. So the whole idea of contact times is important in that regard as well. Uh, another one that's important in, in, uh, in single leg plyometrics is the neutrality of the pelvis, the alignment of the pelvis. You know, if you're going to do a double leg exercise, you have to bring the pelvis into anterior tilt. That's how we actually push off. But when you're doing single leg work, keeping the pelvis pretty near a neutral position is important. In fact, if the pelvis isn't neutral and in alignment with the spine, it actually becomes pretty dangerous, to be honest with you. It kind of skews contact patterns and uh, really disrupts the firing sequences. So keeping the pelvis neutral is a big one there. Now, I, I, and when I look at athletes that have trouble keeping the pelvis neutral, I almost go back, almost always go back and I look at the swing leg mechanics. So when I have athletes that are doing simple single leg bounce or hops or whatever the case may be, and they're having problems with the pelvis, I almost always look at the swing leg, not the jumping side, but the swinging side. Because in those situations, almost always, you'll see that the swing leg is not operating the way that it should. Uh, I, I look for the leg to operate as a longer lever, meaning that as, let's assume I'm jumping off of the left leg. Well, I should see the right leg swing in a way that keeps the right foot pretty close to the ground. And often the thing I think we do in plyometrics is we overcoach knee drive. And when we overcoach knee drive, what happens is the knee tends to flex early. When the knee tends to flex early, the way our bodies are hardwired reflexively, the hip tends to flex. And next thing you know, there's your anterior pelvic tilt. 
So I'm kind of teaching kids to keep their feet close to the ground when they're doing simple hopping and bounding exercises. I'm teaching them to keep their knees kind of low when they're doing simple hopping and bounding exercises, because if the knees are low, the quadricep has an opportunity to turn on to protect the knee and it stays really safe. When you start trying to uh, bring the heel up, the hamstring turns on, the quad turns off, and now suddenly you have something that's very dangerous in that regard and it puts the knee at great jeopardy. So that's something I look at a lot is the, how the free leg is operating, looking for a longer lever as far as the swing movement is concerned, looking not for a lot of knee lift, but hip elevation. That, that's so often, you know, a lot of times you just come up to a, uh, an athlete who doesn't really understand and you, you know, you tell them get tall or something like that and they'll get their knees up higher. But that's not what we're after in plyometrics. It's about keeping the hips elevated, not keeping the knees elevated. So I typically have a rule in these types of simple uh, single leg uh, horizontal types of things is that I never allow them to bring their knees up as high as their hips. As long as I always, the knee can come up to some extent, but if the knee gets as high or higher than the hip, well, then you've just put yourself in a really bad position as far as pelvic alignment is concerned. And the last thing I look for a lot um, uh, technically is trajectory. You know, if you're going to have athletes that are doing repeat jumps, you know, whether it be three bounds or three single leg bounds or whatever the case may be, I'm always trying to coach trajectories. You know, I'm, I, I'm sure a lot of your listeners who've done these types of things have had athletes who struggle with those types of exercises. And as they struggle with those types of exercises, um, what we find is that they get over-rotated or off balance or whatever, and they just simply struggle to finish the exercise. Well, what I typically find in those situations is that the trajectories are too low, meaning that the horizontal component is excessive and the vertical component is insufficient. So I'm always kind of teaching like an out, up, up kind of model as far as repeat pops and bounds and those types of things are concerned. If you come and listen to me coach uh, in the training environment, uh, you hear me say push up a lot more than you hear me say push out. And there seems to be almost a little bit of anatomical horizontal bias uh, in us with humans, whereas we tend to be a little too horizontal. And I have always found that you have to work a lot harder on the vertical characteristics. So anytime I have athletes that are struggling with these types of things, I just increase the flight time. Increasing the flight time allows more preparation time and it just puts them in better postures. So it's a simple way to fix it. You know, don't jump out so much, just jump up more. The, the philosophy being use the first jump in the sequence to establish momentum. And then from that point on, just try to make every jump from that point on uh, uh, demonstrate a higher takeoff angle than the previous one. So I, I guess, you know, you quiz me if I missed anything or if you think there's anything else I should hit, but I feel like those are by far the most things, the things that I look at the most in actually teaching those plyometric exercises. No, that's great. So how do you monitor the, the effectiveness of, of your plyometric program to decide, I guess, to push on to a, to a, a higher level or, or whether that plyometric, you know, uh, activity has, has yielded the benefit you were looking for? Are there any kind of go-to tests that you use? Well, I have some go-to jumps tests that I continuously test on. Uh, but before I give them to you, I would like to say that 
I think that a big part of the effectiveness of plyometrics is driving increases in speed and driving increases in strength. You know, the plyometrics produce really high tension levels. They produce really high levels of neural activation, and those should be crossing over into the speed program and helping your speed program evolve. And plyometrics also help your strength program. You know, I'm not a person who thinks that you get strong in order to perform better in plyometrics, it kind of almost to me works the other way around in many situations. And we kind of been trained to think that you get strong to be fast and whatever, but I, I really think that they are, it works the other way just as much. So that being said, I like to use a standing long jump and a standing triple jump test. A standing long jump, I'm sure you're all familiar with. A standing triple jump test is for me is a double leg start. Uh, and then you, 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 you leap out. And once you, and once you leap out, there's a, you land on the right leg, then you land on the left leg, and then there's a double leg landing. And of course you're doing that for distance. One is more of a power type of test. One is more of a elastic reactive type of test. And uh, although they both have some elastic component, the elastic component is much greater, much higher in the standing triple jump. So in that situation, um, it, it's very helpful to me because I can kind of gauge where a person is if I look at strength as being a power to elasticity kind of a, kind of a, a spectrum or continuum. And then when you throw the weight room testing in it as well, then you really get an objective view of where you are in every particular form of strength. So that being said, those are my jump tests that I use most of the time. But I consider a 30 meter sprint or a 40 meter sprint a jump test in some regard. It's telling me something about the effectiveness of the plyometric program or a single rep or max in the weight room on a clean or something like that. To that, to some extent, tells me something about the effectiveness of the plyometric program also. So I, I just try to be a little more holistic. The reason why I like those two tests is it really helps a lot in my opinion about uh, making judgments about overtraining yeah, you know, I, I always felt that when athletes become overtrained, um, the fine motor control kind of disappears first, uh, and your eye should catch that. But the second thing to go is typically um, a loss of mobility, but more importantly here, a um, loss of elasticity. So normally an elasticity test or an elastic strength test is going to drop in an overtraining situation before a power test would. So if I'm testing an athlete, and uh, maybe it's an in-season situation where the competition loading's been high and I kind of want to know where, where we are. If both tests are great, well, obviously that's fine. But if I kind of see that the elasticity test is down, but the standing long jump, the power test is still pretty good, well, that tells me they're kind of in a phase two overtraining type of mode and I need to be a little careful there. I know a lot of coaches will use a power test as an overtraining test and that will work, but I just think that you've been through two phases of overtraining before you ever get to the point where you see an actual decrease in, in power. Now, when you're standing long jump drops, that's like a, that, that's a big problem. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, I guess, when you, when you look at those tests and, and contrasting them in terms of you obviously got a lot more time to develop force in something like a standing long jump compared to something that's a lot more reactive. And, you know, if your nervous system is a bit sluggish or a bit off, then that's going to show up a lot quicker. Than something that allows you time to develop more force yeah it was that's, really, that's a really interesting I, I really love the way you've kind of explained your continuum but I, again i want to pick up on a point that, you, that i thought kind of reinforces what you said about the holistic element was that that crossover between plyometrics into strength and vice versa 
in that we do like to sometimes as, as SNC coaches kind of segregate, well, this is my strength program and this is my plyometric program, but actually some of the eccentric forces that we're probably experiencing in the plyometric program far exceed what we're applying in the gym. So you're oh, right, yeah, yeah. crossover. Yeah, it's, it's um, with men, you know, women are more elastic than men. Uh, with men, like if you look at like tension levels at like isometric, like one rep max kind of stuff, it's like 175%. You know, and with looking at women, it's like 200%. So if so, if you have a kid who has an injury and, you know, you're doing three sets of 10 for your rehab, which probably gives you about, what, 72% or something like that. Well, competition is not 100%. Competition is 175% or 200% of those tension levels. And it just kind of shows you why I, I like to, why I, I have that philosophy of rehab that I do and how if, you know, you're not looking at the elastic side of things in the rehab, how you fall far, far short. And it, it kind of explains why some rehab programs kind of fail just because they don't address the elastic component effectively. Do you, do you think the same is true in terms of not, not only a rehab, but potentially in performance, like why we don't see oh, no the question. crossover from the gym to the, to the track or to the pitch? Oh, no question about it. No question about it, you know. And, and, and some of it is uh, survival mode, not uh, employment survival mode, you know, when you can show big squat numbers and big, you know, weight room numbers and things like that. Again, it's easy to quantify and it's easy to prove too, you know. So, so uh, you know, you go to your boss and you show the results you're getting, you, you know, you keep a job, but it, it's a little more complicated than that, you know. And every, every curve is not a linear climb it's a u-curve where they reach a points of diminishing returns and at some point in time things fall off you know mm, absolutely well boo it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you so far and picking your brain it's been an encyclopedia of plyometrics it's been fantastic <laughs> but what, well, what about you. you what's on the horizon for you in the next 12 to 18 months what's what projects are you working on or what's coming up oh i'm I'm, I'm in the process of uh, putting together an online course. A Chinese company has actually asked me to put together a speed power development course for them for that, that they're going to translate and have me do some teaching and so forth. So that's kind of my big project right now. I'll be doing some teaching uh, as far as uh, track and field uh, sports specific course courses. And I'll be uh, presenting at the uh, NSCK convention this year as well. So. Maybe I'll write into some of your listeners there. Fantastic. And where Plus, can I'll be doing a lot of coaching in an Olympic year. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Will you be heading to the Games? Like, I mean, presumably, if you're the, the kind of coach specifically for that athlete, you'll be heading to the Games, or will you be limited by whatever restrictions are placed on the team? Well, that's why my schedule is a little lighter than usual, is I'm trying to keep open the opportunity to go to Tokyo because I have some athletes that I'm fairly certain are going to make it. Um, if anything holds me back from going, it'll probably be COVID protocols because they're so complicated and everything and the travel restrictions are so much, but I have every intention of going with anybody that I, you know, that I uh, qualify. So we'll see how it works out. Olympic trials, uh, as we're recording this, Olympic trials here uh, in track and field are starting in a couple of days. So um, hopefully everything goes well. Fingers crossed. Well, where can people uh, keep up to date with, with what you're doing or find out more information about the kind of projects you're involved in or, or your own work. I appreciate it, but I'm the world's worst technophobe and the world's worst so social media person, but I'm at Bushex on Twitter. And um, I also have a website, um, Saxspeed, S-A-C-S, Schechtsnyder Athletic Consulting.com. 
And um, if anybody who knows me personally knows that I kind of abhor the computer world <laughs> and I'm probably the most under the radar guy out there, but I appreciate you bringing me to the forefront. But saxspeed.com is my website. And again, every once in a while, I'll uh, tweet a little something about what I'm doing or whatever. And so follow me on Twitter. I promise I won't uh, bomb your box. I promise that. <laughs> Well, Boo, it's been fantastic learning from you tonight. Yeah. I know that's going to give a load of value to people. So thanks so much for your time. It's been brilliant chatting. Rob, it's been fun. I appreciate it. Anytime. And best of luck for the, the upcoming trials and hopefully your athletes get through to Tokyo. I appreciate that. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, there's a number of simple things you can do to help support the podcast. First, hit subscribe on your chosen podcast player so you're kept up to date with the latest episode releases. Second, you can leave us a review to help us reach more coaches and parents like yourself. Third, you can send this episode on to a coach or friend to help spread the word. And then fourth, you can find us on social media.